Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The reason all these the Russians were able to abuse these platforms so much, this wasn't hacking. This wasn't some secret, nefarious Russian plot to sneak into Facebook and glom itself onto its servers. They were customers of Facebook. They were customers of Twitter. They were customers of YouTube. They used the systems as they were designed. That's Kara Swisher. She's the editor-at-large of Recode, the host of the Recode Decode podcast, and a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. I speak with her about the future of Facebook, why Mark Zuckerberg is unfireable, and whether Silicon Valley is in for a reckoning. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Okay, before we get started with the questions, a quick note. I want to make a correction from something I said last week. When discussing the case of Maria Butina, the alleged Russian spy, I said it was one of the cases referred out by Mueller to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. In fact, the case was a broader counterintelligence investigation by the Justice Department and the FBI that predated the 2016 election. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter, from a user named GWO Design, who says, uh, hashtag AskPreet, what are your thoughts on the delay of Flynn sentencing after Tuesday's court date? So I have a few thoughts. Uh, it was kind of a crazy day. Everyone had been expecting that Michael Flynn would be sentenced. You may recall that Michael Flynn is the former national security advisor who pled guilty to a single count of making false statements to the FBI, which is a serious crime. But the guidelines under the sentencing regime call, generally speaking, for only a zero to six month sentence. Flynn's lawyers, as you might expect, requested that Flynn not be sentenced to any jail time. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, the special counsel's office also made a recommendation of leniency for Michael Flynn on a few different bases. One, that he was very cooperative, two, that he had performed important military service to the country over the course of more than three decades, and that the crime itself carried with it only a guidelines recommendation of zero to six months. That's the range. And you'll recall when Michael Flynn was arrested a year ago and pled guilty to that one offense, there were questions about whether or not he had been given a sweetheart deal and not asked to plead guilty to other crimes which could have been proven, or did they just not have information about other crimes or enough evidence of other crimes? Well, I think the answer to that question is now much more clear. That Michael Flynn was given a very, very good deal, that unlike some offices like the Southern District of New York, the special counsel does not have an absolute policy of making someone who is guilty of other things 
plead to all of those things, acknowledge all of those things. And one of the reasons we know why Michael Flynn is guilty of other things, it seems, is that two of his former business associates were charged the day before his own sentencing was scheduled. And Michael Flynn himself is referred to in that document. And it appears that he would have similar culpability on, a, on the criminal side with respect to those things. There's also a lot of signals from the reporting that there are other shoes to drop with respect to Michael Flynn's cooperation on various matters. And the likelihood is that he's able to cooperate on those other matters and provide substantial assistance on those other matters because he himself was involved in them. So he got a sweetheart deal. And as we were moving towards sentencing this week, all signs pointed to Michael Flynn doing okay and coming out with no jail sentence. And I'm not saying it's all attributable to his lawyers, but his lawyers made a colossal blunder by starting to suggest to the court on the eve of sentencing a number of things, including that Michael Flynn was mistreated by the FBI, that Michael Flynn in some way was entrapped, that Michael Flynn, you know, was sort of not certain that the plea was appropriate, and throwing up a lot of dust and a lot of smoke, and Judge Sullivan was having none of it. The arguments made by defense counsel started to be circulated in in the echo chamber of conservative talk radio and television, and a lot of Michael Flynn defenders and Trump defenders started to say all sorts of things, exalting the judge, Emmett Sullivan, in some ways correctly, by saying that Emmett Sullivan, uniquely among federal judges, has no fear about knocking down the government and shutting down the government when he doesn't like its arguments. Emmett Sullivan, as you may know, perhaps most famously, excoriated the U.S. Department of Justice after it botched the prosecution of Ted Stevens, the former late senator from Alaska. So he has a history of calling out government overreaching and government misconduct. And so when this submission made its way into the court, it was a field day for a lot of commentators who decided to prop up Judge Sullivan and say, correctly, he's a no-nonsense judge. He doesn't like BS. And it turns out he doesn't. The problem is the BS in this case were the arguments being made at the last minute, unnecessarily in my view, because I think he was going to end up doing okay, by Michael Flynn's lawyers to Emmett Sullivan. If you just want a sense of how no-nonsense Judge Sullivan was and where he thought the nonsense was coming from, here's just a snippet of the transcript from the sentencing this week. And the court, on point after point made in the sentencing submission and that people were talking about on the airwaves, asks direct questions to Michael Flynn's lawyers. Here's a few examples. The court, do you believe the FBI had a legal obligation to warn Mr. Flynn that lying to the FBI was a federal crime? Flynn's lawyer, no, your honor. The court, is it your contention that Mr. Flynn was entrapped by the FBI? Lawyer, no, your honor. The court, do you believe Mr. Flynn's rights were violated by the fact that he did not have a lawyer present for the interview? The defense, no, your honor. The court, do you believe his rights were violated by the fact that he may have been dissuaded from having a lawyer present for the interview? Response, no, your honor. And it goes on and on like that. So what I think happened during the course of the proceeding is that the judge made it clear that he understood that Michael Flynn was guilty of a lot more things, said he was disgusted by the conduct. At one point, he overreached a little bit himself and made a, a misleading statement about, about whether or not Michael Flynn was involved in lobbying for another country while he was a national security advisor. That wasn't true. But he was clear that he was horrified by the conduct, not just by the mere lies that were the subject of his guilty plea. And then further made it clear that he didn't like the arguments that were being made and the nonsense that was being spattered about the FBI. 
and the self-pitying sort of tirade that he read in the sentencing memorandum. And then further, and perhaps most importantly, the judge made clear to Michael Flynn that he might sentence him to prison, notwithstanding the plea, notwithstanding the cooperation, notwithstanding his military service, and asked him and his lawyers before taking a recess, do you still want to proceed or do you want to finish your cooperation? And I think you've heard me say on the show before, the standard operating procedure for a cooperating witness, for a lot of reasons, as crystallized in this case, is you wait until all your cooperation is done, until you've testified, until the prosecutors can have the best opportunity to advise the court of how much you help them. And then after that, you go to court and you get sentenced. Now, the argument here has been that Michael Flynn wanted to get on with his life in the same way sort of Michael Cohen wanted to. But you're at a disadvantage when you do that, especially when you have a judge who's angry at your conduct and not necessarily going to go along with what the government suggests or your lawyer suggests. And so the best route for him ultimately, I think, was to do what he did, which was to take the hint from the judge, double down on his cooperation, go back with the special counsel's office, adjourn the sentencing date, and be able to prove to the court at that point that you're not making up, you know, gamesman-like arguments, but rather that you're contrite, that you're apologetic, you take responsibility. And by the way, look at all these other things that I've done over the last several months. And you have sort of a, you hit the pause button in a way on sentencing. It's important to remember that the documents filed in court make clear that Michael Flynn had 19 sessions with prosecutors. So it is not necessarily the case that he is going to do a ton of more sessions and point them in new directions so they can prosecute other people if they haven't thought about prosecuting yet. The special counsel's office has just made it clear that there is the possibility of continuing cooperation. And part of what happens through a pause is the fruit of that cooperation is more likely to be known and more likely to be credited for his benefit if some more months elapse. And so he probably did himself a favor, probably did the special counsel's office a favor. So that's why I think it was delayed. Here's a Twitter question from user Alyssa S. Davis, who asks, what happens to SDNY and Mueller investigations if there is a U.S. government shutdown? Hashtag Ask Preet. Well, it seems to me as we're recording this that the shutdown has likely been averted, but that doesn't mean there won't be another threat of a shutdown in a few months and a few months after that. Uh, I presided as U.S. attorney during an actual government shutdown a few years ago. And I will tell you just at the outset that there's nothing more embarrassing and humiliating for a functioning democracy than to have its politicians not be able to play nice enough together to keep the government open for lots of important services. And people have sometimes asked me, did you ever have a bad day? What was your worst day as U.S. attorney? And there were days where things didn't go the way we wanted. The worst day was having to go and tell a subset of fine public servants in the Southern District of New York that the politicians that we have sent to Washington are dumb. They don't know how to keep the government open. They're at an impasse. And the consequence of that is some subset of you are going to go home and are not permitted to come to work, are not permitted to work from home, even though you have these important jobs. And there is no guarantee that you will ever be paid for those days that you were sent home. And on top of that, to have to say that the emergency shutdown plan of the Justice Department distinguishes two categories of people as essential or non-essential. And you folks who I consider to be vital and critical to the mission of the office and to help the public, because a lot of you do civil work and not criminal work, we're deeming you non-essential. So to tell people they might not get paid, to tell people their government doesn't respect them enough, and to tell them 
that they are being categorized as non-essential is a terrible thing to have to do. So that's point one. Point two is, as you might infer from the division of essential and non-essential, generally when these plans are written up in the various departments, including the Justice Department, and it might be different now, but this is the way it was a few years ago, that most people who are doing criminal work, criminal FBI agents, criminal prosecutors who are engaged in dealing with public safety, whatever the nature of the public safety threat, are considered essential and remain on duty. So my expectation would be that investigations at the SDNY of whatever type and the Mueller investigation would continue. This is also a question from Twitter coming from user Krabby Commuter. I feel your pain. Why would we trust that Butina will be a legit cooperator and not one like the others who've misled or withheld at whomever's behest? Clearly to their detriment, but why would they even consider this? She has a lot to be afraid of. So you're referring to Maria Butina, who has decided to plead guilty and cooperate with prosecutors with respect to her knowledge about Russian engagement with the U.S., perhaps during the campaign, her involvement with various matters relating to the NRA, potentially, and also her connections to a conservative political operative. So you ask a great question, which is a question that is not unique to Maria Butina. It's a question that you always ask with respect to every cooperator, that prosecutors had to ask about Paul Manafort after he went to trial, was convicted, decided to cooperate, to flip, and then he turned out not to be a legit cooperator and continued to lie to prosecutors and didn't give them the truth. And it appears that at various points he had contact with the White House and the administration that he lied about. So you ask those questions and you try to corroborate everything they say. Now, she could be pretend cooperating like people sometimes do and like Paul Manafort did in connection with the Mueller investigation, but we'll see. I'm pretty confident, though, that the prosecutors in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office are going to be very, very careful and hesitant to believe something on her word alone, what's going to be required are emails and phone conversations and texts and other corroborating bits of information that make them believe the things that she is saying about other folks. That's the way it works in all cooperation scenarios and will work that way here also. And let me say something else, you know, as we will end up seeing with Paul Manafort, if you decide to cooperate, fine. If you decide to not cooperate, fine. But the worst thing you can do is decide to cooperate and then renege on your obligation to tell the truth. That puts you in the absolute worst position. So now that she's decided to flip and agreed to cooperate, the one thing that the government has going for it is that people who are intelligent, and Paul Manafort seems not to be in this regard, people who are intelligent have every incentive to tell the truth and the whole truth because they've made this decision to cooperate in the first place. It is pointless to do this, put yourself in harm's way, put your family perhaps in Russia in harm's way, and not go the full 100 yards. My guest this week is Kara Swisher. She has been covering Silicon Valley since the 1990s and is one of the world's most influential technology journalists. Kara has interviewed everyone from Mark Zuckerberg to Steve Jobs to Bill Gates and has no fear of holding big tech companies to account. I talk with her about how technology has affected democracy, whether Google should operate in China, and what would happen if Twitter deleted Donald Trump's account. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by The New Yorker. 
The New Yorker is an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. You've heard their writers here on Stay Tuned. Jane Mayer on Brett Kavanaugh, Ronan Farrow on Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, and Jeffrey Tubin with me live from the town hall. Their reporters hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. And they don't just cover the subjects we tackle here, politics, justice, and the law. Every week there's great reporting on international affairs, climate change and the environment, science and technology, business, fiction, poetry, food, humor, and cartoons. You pick up the magazine to read the talk of the town, and suddenly you're reading 10,000 words on a subject you had no idea could be so fascinating. Paper jams, fault lines, heirloom beans, stink bugs. So don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash Preet. Listeners of Stay Tuned save 50% when they enter code Preet. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6, plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo print and digital subscription. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash Preet. I want to remind everyone to listen to my new podcast, co-hosted by the former New Jersey Attorney General and my friend, Ann Milgram. It's called Cafe Insider. Every week, we break down the headlines and take stock of what's happening. Members of Cafe Insider will get access to full episodes and a weekly newsletter. So go to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. Kara Swisher, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. So we have a lot of things to talk about. The timing is great. But first, I want to ask you a question about you. Sure. Which is... Who the hell am I? Who the hell are you, Kara? <laughs> Will the real Kara Swisher please stand up? Well, no, look. So I'm going to I'm going to ask this question by reference to a movie. Okay. I think it's a Bronx Tale. Right. Great, a, great movie. Great film. Great. And the main character gets asked the question. He's a mobster, and he gets asked the question: Would you rather be loved or be feared? Mm-hmm. And he says, "I'd rather be feared." Mm-hmm. Feared. Feared. Yeah. Right. That's my that's my Bronx. Bronx. Yeah. It's my Indian Bronx accent. And the reason I asked that question is one of the most interesting things written about you yeah. in New York Magazine yeah. was that you are the most feared and most well-liked yeah. tech reporter in Silicon How does Valley. she do that? So are you doing something right or something wrong? I, you know, I, here's why I think I'm liked, because I, I think they see me coming. I don't, I'm not really unfair and sneaky. I think that's what it is, is I think I'm very clear with the people I'm covering, and so I can have long dialogues with them. And I don't disrespect them unless they really are disrespectful essentially. So I think I treat people with respect and at the same time don't back down. So I think they're scared of what I might know. And then at the same time, I'm not rude. I mean, people always are surprised that I'm pretty you seem charming. Very, you seem very charming. I am charming. Already. Even am just actually. two minutes into the interview. And, fu- and funny. I think I'm very funny. I think I'm somewhat disarming with the people I cover. And so I just do. <laughs> if you don't say so yourself. Right. If I do say, Well, I will say so myself. But it's like, it's like, it's like look, reporters are, you know, Joan Didion said it best that reporters are always you know, are manipulative people. And charming is is not a... Manipulative, I don't mean in a negative sense. Right. I mean in a positive sense, is that, you know, you're a lawyer. You know, you have to charm juries. You have to charm judges. You have to charm clients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, guests. And so, guests, right, yeah. exactly. So you have to have, you have, to have a, a, an arsenal of qualities. And I ap- actually happen to like the people I cover. I find them interesting. Are they right to fear you? Yeah, I think so. In some cases, not everybody. I think they should fear... Uh, people who ask them straight up questions about what they're doing. I think a lot of Silicon Valley, like a lot of industries, gets by on a lot of sort of hype and PR. And I think when people go, well, I don't really understand that or ask sort of more pointed questions, I think they get nervous. So yes. So let's talk about Facebook. Mm -hmm. Because as we sit here in the studio on Wednesday, December 19th, 
big story in the New York Times mm -hmm. about Facebook. You've written about Facebook and some mm -hmm. of the other big social media tech companies. And the New York Times reports that unbeknownst to people previously, Facebook has been sharing personal information of a gazillion, I don't know what the official number is, but a gazillion, gazillion people yeah. with other companies and sort of seems to be getting away with it by suggesting, as Mark Zuckerberg has, well, we never sold personal information. Right, directly. They just shared it. Yeah. How big a deal is that? Well, it's just more of the drip, drip, drip of what they've been doing and how they've been conducting their, the, the data that they've been entrusted with, how they've been managing it. And I think badly, I think is probably a very nice way to put it. Look, they've been in this data business forever and everyone understands it. And the question is now people are starting to drop a dime on Facebook and saying, here's how they actually shared. And the question is, is it's so interesting because when I put this up, I said, what's really interesting to me and striking about the latest New York Times, of which there have been many all kinds of people. We've been warning about their privacy issues for years and their lack of care around the privacy um, and have been quizzing Mark Zuckerberg about this for, for 10 years, is how badly they manage the privacy they've been entrusted with and how loose they are with it. And I think that's really at the heart of what's going on here is that these are advertising businesses, so data is going to be attached to them, but they have enormous amounts of data in people and how they manage it is pretty sloppy. But why? Why has it been so sloppy? Why is it so bad? Why is it that this company that is so profitable, has so many, you know, so-called geniuses who run it. This is central to their business model and to their reputation. Why are they screwing it up so badly? Well, I mean, there, there's there's no two ways about it. You are the product of these people. These, they're selling your information. And not, they're not just doing that. What they do, what's really interesting and very canny by Mark Zuckerberg when he was in Congress was he was like, we don't sell data, Congressman. We don't sell data, Senator. They don't sell data. What they do is they take data and they manipulate and mash it up and combine it with other data and then sell insights into the data to everybody. Or they share it with partners that they want to be part of the Facebook platform for whatever advantage Facebook is looking for. So in the case of Bing, they may have some some deal where they trade data back and forth, for example, or information. Same thing with Netflix or Spotify. Sometimes it's just an advertising relationship. But the fact of the matter is, is they're taking your data and doing things with it in order to monetize it in some way. And the way they've been doing it has been it's just been sloppily managed, you know, and, and sometimes it has massive repercussions in terms of how they manage their platforms, such as in Myanmar or India, where they didn't have rules or ability to monitor some of the things that were going on on the platform. So it's sloppy to me all over the place with very disturbing repercussions. So when you say sloppy, mm -hmm. some might say you're letting them a little bit off the hook by suggesting, you know, they just didn't get it right. There was some incompetence. There was negligence. Rather than they're intentionally manipulating your data. They're intentionally telling Congress what they want to hear, and they're right. intentionally telling the users something that would not make them freak out. I think what they what they've done is that they've been very what they've been very loose in deciding what the rules they agreed to with you are in in terms of whether I think the the fault actually lies with Congress and other regulatory agencies that have never put into place laws of what they can do and what they can't do. And so what they've done is they built a wild west where anything goes. And then they say anything goes. And I think that's the issue is that we have created this situation to allow these platforms through a series of legislative things, including Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives these, and you know about immunity, these companies have broad immunity. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to be good citizens or you think they're going to make the most money possible? And at the same time, they, when they get in these enormous washes of data that flood their system, they can't manage them. I, I think to say they're doing it intentionally, of course they're doing it intentionally, but they're allowed to do it intentionally. And the question is, are there going to be laws in place to stop them from doing it? Is Congress too dumb to do that? And by that, <laughs> I don't mean, you know, IQ. Right. But 
not experienced enough. I mean, we all, not all of us, but many of us witnessed Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in yeah. Congress. And the talk about it was not what his testimony was, no. but how absurd and Luddite well, because they were, were fixated on things like whether conservatives get to speak, like whether Diamond and Silk get to be on Facebook properly. They, the things they are, or what are the terms of service as if that was the biggest problem of our nation's national security? Look, Congress has regulated the telecom industry before. They have regulated Microsoft. They have regulated uh, all kinds of companies, oil companies, finance companies, things like that. They will be able to do it if they, and there are laws already in place. It's not like there isn't earlier stuff that's going on in California. There's a privacy uh, law in California that's really interesting. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in Europe. It's not like they can't follow the dots in terms of what should happen. And the question is if they have the political will to do so and to understand how much data is washing around the system and who's taking advantage of it. So before we get to maybe more specifics about Mm -hmm. how Congress might regulate Mm -hmm. entities like Facebook, let me first ask you what the business future is. Lots of people are upset after the Cambridge Analytica story, and I'm sure more people will be upset after this story. And so some people are taking matters into their own hands. Somebody who is a longtime business partner of yours Mm -hmm. and a mentor of yours, Walt Mossberg, deleted his Facebook account. And there there are reports that some percentages of people who have been avid users of Facebook are deleting their account. Right. Is that a good idea? Should I delete my Facebook account? Uh, You have to understand what information they have. I don't use Facebook that much. I find it a very... I don't use it because I don't like the product. I think it's lugubrious and big and bloated and stuff like that. But they do... What does lugubrious mean? Just slow moving. It just... I don't find any use to it. I don't find... I was asking for a friend. (laughs) Thank you. No problem. You know, Walt did this because Walt's very... You know, he has very strong opinions about privacy and the uses of privacy. And I think through its history, Facebook has shown either cynically or sloppily that they have not been able to manage data properly. And their first inclination is to steal information or to take information and manipulate it. And I think what years ago, Walt called Mark Zuckerberg an information thief to me. And I, I was always struck by that. Like, whatever he can take, he takes and he grabs. And the question is, is he grabbing it? What is he grabbing it for? And for what reason? In his mind, he is helping create this great information place for people to share and be part of a community and stuff like that. And the trade-off you make by giving that information is worth it. Other people don't think so. I think the issue for Facebook is whether they can make products in the future that I mean, I don't think they're going to ma- it matters that Walt Mossberg comes off of it. I think it matters if the next generation of users thinks Facebook is a worthwhile product. And that's where the rubber will hit the road with these companies. It's not going to be suddenly everyone deletes them. Everyone didn't delete Uber after all the, the shenanigans there. And that, talk about malevolent <laughs> shenanigans, right? They didn't. What they did well, is they got new people in the place. That's because, and I heard people say this publicly, and I take no position on Uber mm-hmm. versus Lyft. But there are people who said, I didn't want to use Uber, and then they wanted to get from point A to point B, and they tried Lyft, and they couldn't get a Lyft car to come, and they went back to the service that actually works. So convenience matters more over morals, I suppose. You know, I mean, the question is, and of course, they changed their CEO, and things happened. There was a lot of pressure from the media and other places around what happened at Uber. But the the question is not so much is whether Facebook will do well. Is it such a good business without its ability to rapaciously grab data and use it to their liking? And if they're hindered, is that such a good business? I think that's one of the issues. Again, is the product good? Um, Will other products they have, like Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus, be enough to lift them into the future? That's that's another question. You know, you reference Uber and mm-hmm. the change in leadership from right. Travis to a new person. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg and or Sheryl Sandberg should go? You know, I think a lot of the focus has been on Sheryl because Sheryl's the one that can be fired. Mark can't be fired. He's. I wrote a column. He's unfireable. You cannot fire. You, he's like a zombie. You cannot kill him. You cannot. He's Wolverine. <laughs> he's Deadpool. You can't. The- he controls 60% 
of the shareholder uh, voting stock. And he controls the, he effectively controls the company. He's the chairman. He's the CEO. He's the founder. Very hard in Silicon Valley to get rid of someone like that. But should he go? I think he's not capable of running that company. Absolutely. He either should get help and have get some really serious management in there. But I don't think he's actually capable of understanding the, the massive amounts of societal impact that his company has. There's one person in charge of the most important communication system in the world, in world history. One person who didn't finish college, who doesn't take humanities <laughs> courses, who doesn't, is incapable of doing it. Maybe any, nobody's capable of doing it, but he certainly isn't. So should we be afraid? Nervous. I, I definitely think uneasy. Uneasy. Uneasy that one person controls such a vast information vehicle on this planet at this point. Yes, I would be nervous. How do you describe what Facebook is? At, at some point, I think earlier on in its existence, Mark Zuckerberg likened it to a utility. Yeah, he did that to me. I wrote about that. Yeah. Right. So is that fair? Well, if it's a utility, maybe it should be regulated. Yes, that's right? what we do with utilities. Right, that's what we do. So maybe that's not such a big... I mean, I think it's a media company of some sort, a, a weird amalgam of a media company, a communications vehicle. We've never seen anything like this, and it's the biggest experiment in history of people being able to do and say whatever they want and, and to remove gatekeepers. And, you know, as much as you can insult gatekeepers, they did keep things clean, right? They did keep things gated, and certain things didn't get out there. And the question is, can you control these platforms, given that... They are designed. I mean, one of the things I pointed out in a column this week is the reason all these the Russians were able to abuse these platforms so much. This wasn't hacking. This wasn't some secret nefarious Russian plot to sneak into Facebook and put and glom itself onto its servers. They were customers of Facebook. They were customers of Twitter. They were customers of YouTube. They used the systems as they were designed. So the question is, are these systems designed in the wrong way? Do you think Facebook in its current form or close to its current form mm -hmm will be a booming, living company in 10 years? No. My first book was about AOL. Remember how big AOL was? And then it wasn't. Yeah, what's, what's AOL? Uh, it's now, they just changed <laughs> it. What did they just got rid of the name and they're calling it Y or Verizon Media Services. So is it the life cycle of these kinds of companies that they won't be in the same form 10 years from now? Now, Amazon started some 20-something odd years ago and now is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable company in the world. Why do you think Facebook won't Amazon's be like Amazon? a very different company. Amazon is providing something that people need constantly, which is which is things, right? And so that's a very different business. And they've managed to create moat after moat around a business of delivery. And then they've added to their offerings as time goes on. They've added entertainment. They've added delivery. They've added convenience. They've added quickness and stuff like that. So that's a very different business um, than Facebook. Facebook is, is a fad business in a lot of ways. People do need to communicate and find a way to communicate. And this is just the latest version of that. I'm not sure if there's anything to replace it as the issue. And the question is whether Facebook can innovate enough to serve the purpose that it's supposed to serve, which is to connect people around the globe in a convenient way. Because one of the biggest risks, you talk about it being a fad business, is that Facebook is already becoming sort of passe. I mean, do young kids, Amongst, do young do kids, kids don't, don't No, don't my it. kids don't use it. They use, they use Instagram, but my son just called Instagram a museum, <laughs> uh, which I thought was funny, which he was right. It's a, dis it's a performative display mechanism for people to show off their vacations and food things they're eating, um, or how happy their family is. If you if you ever spent any time in Instagram, you feel terrible at the end of it because it's just a... Well, just not as terrible as I feel after spending some time on Twitter. See, I like we'll Twitter. We'll get to. I'm, I'm against... We're going to talk about right. the toxicity of Twitter. Okay, all right. I think, I think it's very different. So anyway, they own Instagram. So Instagram is growing and people do like it. Uh, they do have WhatsApp, which is a very fast-growing communication system around the world. It's encrypted. Obviously, there's issues around that. And then, and they, of course, WhatsApp's been in trouble, has been implicated in India and, and other places 
because of the of the nature of the way they've built it for virality. And so the question is, we, we, we always think of it in terms of just this country. What's happening globally is much more dangerous of what's happening in, say, the Philippines. I just interviewed Maria Ressa, who's on the cover of Time magazine. She's a journalist there. Um, Facebook is the way everybody gets all their information. Like 97% of the Philippines is on Facebook. This is effectively CBS, ABC, NBC, New York Times, Washington Post in one big group without the controls that those media organizations have. So if, if Facebook... I wonder about these platforms mm-hmm. now. For those people, if Facebook went belly up tomorrow and ceased operations, not going to happen. But if they did, mm-hmm. what happens to the consumers of news in the Philippines? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what happened today. We, they, we just, they don't know. Preet, what would happen if, if Twitter Podcasts. removed Donald Trump from Twitter? What would happen? The world would be a better place. Well, okay, but it, they haven't. I'm just saying, they, they, it's, they're not going to. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of the reason I asked that question is, does that inform my earlier question that... Facebook is sort of too big and important to some people in their lives and in other countries that, you know, there are enough forces to prop it up. Oh, of course it, it will. Fit. I mean, before they used to get information through what? Radio, through yeah. TV, through newspapers and things like that. Well, those businesses have been decimated by, guess what? Facebook, right? So these, not just Facebook, but uh, but Google and Facebook, right. essentially. And the other problem for, for people who have their own media businesses and even other small businesses is they rely on the Facebook algorithm for consumers yeah. to find them. Yep. And when, remember this happened a few, some months ago, or maybe it was a year or two ago, Facebook on its own just decides to change what the Google. algorithm, right. Google also, what shows up in, its fee, in, in people's feeds. And people's businesses are decimated because they're relying on this platform sure. that is not regulated very well. It's, it's not a utility, not regulated as a utility. And so people are left a little bit at risk because sure. you have this monolithic thing but it's not regulated at all. Let's just be clear. There are no laws that regulate them. None. They have none. Media companies have them. Teleco companies have them. Wall Street firms, so pass whether the they're law. worse or not. So what law? So, so you're, wave your magic wand, as I sometimes ask on the show. One law that's clear and understandable that can be enforced to regulate something I would like remove Facebook. immunity from the platforms, that they are responsible for what's on their platforms in some way. Completely? It, it, no. No, it has to be, right, it has to, you have to think clearly about what, what they need to be responsible for. But that lack of any responsibility means lack of any responsibility. I think that would be something. I think a privacy bill that was that had some teeth to it where you had to – just even the basic thing is when you hack – when something – like Facebook also had a, announced a hacking earlier. that You forgot about that because there were not – there was the Senate report about how the Russians manipulated the platform. Then there was this. And then there was a hacking this week. So, for example, in a hacking, they should tell people immediately about a hacking and reset passwords and stuff like that. Things like that that require them to do it without taking six months or six, three months or whatever months. Is, is there a way that we should think about changing the economic model? Maybe it's not possible. And the reason I ask that is in the Times article today that we've been talking about, about Facebook, there's this very compelling sentence that says, uh, quote, personal data is the oil of the 21st yeah. century. A resource worth billions. Is that right? Is that yes? Is that how it should be? Well, the personal data is you can target people in the most astonishing way. You spend every day of your life with a cell phone in your pocket, right? You are. It's mostly in my hand, right? It's in your hand, and you're staring at it, and you're walking down the street, not talking to other human beings. (laughs) Not right now. I'm talking to you, but. It is full of information. The old days, you used to sit at your computer and you go from website to website to website, right? They could track you and understand you, but this one. It goes with you. It says where you're going, where you moved, what you did there, what you bought there, who you called. It has so much. You were literally put a sensor on your body that is constantly 
communicating information about what you're doing in the most incredibly rich way. And so they can think about it. There's never been able to track people in this way in history. And so that is makes a lot of money. It's it's worth money. I'm terrified now. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> I mean, you should be. I have, I have all kinds of things on my thing, but I, I give into it too. You've said this also, expanding beyond Facebook. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are the digital arms dealers of the modern age. Mm-hmm. Arms dealers? Yeah. They Explain were that. mad when I said that. <laughs> all of them together were mad. Because they are selling information. Information is power, right? So it, they control all the information. And so therefore, they can either sell it to marketers or they can sell it to Russians. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, anyone can avail themselves to these tools and platforms to do things. Like, just the fact that the Russians were able to go on these platforms and abuse it in such a way without any controls should say to you that these people are sloppy and they're not running their platforms correctly, or they've designed these platforms so that this is exactly what would occur. They've designed them for virality, engagement, and speed. And when you design something for virality, engagement, and speed, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get fake news. You're going to get trolls. You're going to get malevolent players. You're going to get a leakage of information. You're going to, it just, this is the way it was designed from the start. This is how these platforms are designed from the start, to be open platforms where anybody can do anything. And when anyone can do anything, anyone will do anything. But isn't that arguably the fault of the people? They're getting what they want. And so, you know, we have all this discussion about privacy and data and people selling it. And a lot of people are up in arms and people are on television and you and I are talking about this. But the mass of people do not freak out and take to the streets when there's the most massive surveillance of 2.2 billion customers that Facebook has, they actually don't freak out so much. They don't freak out because they don't understand quite how how much. But they don't tracking. see they don't see direct right harm because they're getting to them, stuff. They're right? getting stuff right. They're getting a cool service. They get to you know whatever your mom's group that you're talking about whatever or your you know my kid has a lacrosse team and they coordinate on that. You get a lot of stuff. And so I think what it is is you don't understand how this all knits together and how these tech companies, not just beyond just surveillance, and, and believe me, it's it's worse in China because they allow facial recognition and things like that. When it starts to get into some really dicey stuff and the ability to put sensors everywhere and on you and in you and stuff like that, that's when we have to really start wondering and you're gonna what say, we're doing. But I take your point to be that by then it'll be too late. And so yes. people have to freak out now, sort of like climate change. Right. Like, you know, we can still inhabit the earth today. Right. But the signs are that it's not going to be good in the future. And a similar sort of thing, if it's fair, you tell me, is happening with respect to data privacy and our personal information. Right. This is an information war going on for your information. And sometimes it could be used just to sell you something from Procter & Gamble, which may seem benign. Okay, so I get toilet paper or I get whatever. (laughs) Or it could be used to impact elections. Or it could be used to say, what if the point is you could fake you could change video and make it seem like you, Preet, said something you didn't say. How would you stop that? I mean, who's running those systems and how do you end it? And so that's it creates a propaganda machine of untold power. And it depends on whose hands this power resides in. That's all, I just want people to think about it. Like it's just it's just a very basic thing. Years ago, one of the founders of Google, I can't remember, I always confuse the two of them. I was really hard on them because they were trying to take over Yahoo search and in that case they would have controlled 90 some percent of the search in this country, in this country and besides not even getting globally. I said at least Microsoft knew they were thugs when they were trying to m- monopolize things and one of them called me. I think made him an Eric Schmidt or I can't remember. 
And they said, How, why do you think we're bad? Why do you think we won't run these things? And I said, well, you know what? You might be, you're, I'm a nice person. Like, I, we're good people. That's what they always say. And I was like, you know what? What if Hitler got his hands on this? Like, wow, that would be a lot of power to have all that information. About people. What if a bad man got in charge of it? And by the way, bad men will get in charge of it. And they do in the Philippines, what's happening uh, with Duarte and the use of Facebook and other social media platforms to to target enemies and things like that. I just I just imagine a world where this amount of information can be put in the wrong hands, and, and I would like people to think about it. Well, speaking of Google and China, right. um, Google does not operate in China at the moment. Right, they were there. They, they were, were pretty there. big. They were pretty big there. And then they're out, and now they're... You have said, mm-hmm. I think correctly, that something that people aren't focusing on enough, separate and apart from these other issues we've been talking about, is that Google is flirting with the idea of going into China. Yeah, many, yeah. Why, why is that so bad, given that all sorts of American companies operate in China? You have free market in the world. They're mm-hmm. private companies. They're not charities. Why cut themselves off from a gigantic market? I, I, I'm not saying. I just want to know what they're doing. They're going, to create a, they're going to create a censored search engine. So let's just talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about a U.S. company creating a censored search engine. And if they want to do it, they need to pay the price for what that costs. And that's all. I want them to talk about it transparently and understand what they're doing to the Chinese citizens that they're monitoring and things like that. And I think they want to go back into China. They regretted leaving China. And they did that in kind of a huff because they were being monitored by the – what a surprise. The Chinese government is – abusive in its monitoring of citizens. Yeah. What, a, what a shock. And now they want to go back because they do need to be part of that big market. Um, and they're already there, by the way. Google does a lot of advertising and things like that in China already. Its advertising services are there. And so the question is, how do they go back in and how should we think about that? That's all. I just want to understand how, transparently. How powerful is Google? I, this is the way I think about it. Maybe mm-hmm. this is an absurd question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's a podcast and sure. I can. Mm-hmm. Um there are, I, I guess, something like 195 sovereign nations on Earth. Right. If Google were a country, where would you rank it in terms of power? Very powerful. Up at the top. I think these companies are nation states. I do. I think of them as nation states. And it's not just Google. It's YouTube. Just think about yeah. YouTube. And that's another sloppily, you know, all those videos that take you down a rabbit hole of right wing or left wing or whatever wing you want to go to. But, you know, the, the way that's designed is it's not designed to have a clean platform. And by the way, Google search is very clean. When you search for... I don't know, ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. You find information about the Anti-Defamation League. When you go on YouTube a couple months ago or about six months ago when I was looking at it, you found anti-Semitic stuff. Why would you find anti-Semitic videos when you search for ADL? Why is that what comes up? Now, they've tried to fix that, but the fact of the matter is they've let anybody at all upload information onto the platform without any monitoring of what goes on there. And then they they reap the rewards and the negative parts of that. So, yeah, they're very powerful. Twitter? Yeah. You said that you like being on Twitter. I do. I, I do, do sometimes also. Yeah, you're good at it. Well, Pri. thank you. But there's a lot of you anger. You like it. And I can tell. You, I can see, like, see I you also, sitting there thumbing up like, oh, I got a good I also, one. I also like Doritos very much. Yes, that's true. But, They're you know, delicious. then you eat a bag of Doritos and you're like, that's kind of gross. So why are you on there so much? I don't know. Yeah. I've had I like it for guests. the information. I like the news. I like. I think it's a really great news. It, it, in its best form, Twitter is a great place to find out about news and when things are happening, Particularly right? Particularly breaking news. And so, it's also a great platform to get clever people like you. Well, your take on the news is interesting to me, too. Well, your commentary and stuff like that, it's great. I enjoy it. I think the problem is, is when it becomes bullying or when it becomes a, a vehicle for abuse. And I think that's the problem you have. You once said something about Twitter. You said rules won't save Twitter. Values will. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? 
Well, that they they decide what is allowed and what is not allowed on there. And I think one of the things Twitter is of all the companies are the most sort of free speechy, you know, of the of the internet companies. Free <laughs> you speechy. say that as a negative kind no, of thing. No, well, you know what I mean. It's, in the first amendment, I, the only reason why is because they do it in this way that they act like freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequence, right? They act like, hey, free speech, that's it, that's the end of the argument. And it's a very, as you know, as a lawyer, it's a really complicated argument of what free speech is and what people should be able to say, whether people should be able to say false things or or difficult things, and and so I think they. They sort of stop at the anyone can say anything. And that's kind of like the to me, the toddler version of free speech, right? <laughs> like anyone can scream on the court. OK. And then what? How do we conduct a society where we're, we're going to do that? And so the minute you say, well, maybe we should think about Alex Jones. Maybe we should think about whether we should do this. And by the way, these are not government entities. That's what they always act like, that they're like the federal government. It's just Twitter and they just make money and they can make rules around what's allowed and what's not allowed on their platform. And so I think some of their values should be if they're going to have values around anti-bullying or whatever they pick. They have to be strict in doing them and create rules that are understandable for people to follow. People do understand a stop sign, right? I mean, when you're driving, you it means, get... It means slow down, right? Yes. No, it means stop, <laughs> pause, look both ways, whatever. Yes, in New York, it means something different. But people do understand street signs. They do understand rules. They do understand all kinds of things. We're, we're able to do that. And the question is, you can't just scream, do whatever you want, and not expect to reap the consequences of that particular mentality. This uh, debate about bias, mm-hmm. whether in Google searches or oh, on yeah. YouTube, is that nonsense or is it's that nonsense. true? On either side, it's nonsense? Yes, it's nonsense. Whatever. <laughs> it's just not. Do you want to say anything more to debunk it's it? It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's, it's really, like, have you, is Donald Trump been, been not been able to say what he thinks? I feel like we've had plenty of Donald Trump and his friends and all the right wing. They get to do whatever they want. And in fact, what's interesting is for years, and I do agree with this, that the right side of this country, the more conservative side, was kept out of media. Media was, is and has been pretty liberal for most of its history, or, or centrist, I would say. I wouldn't say too liberal because they like to keep control of, you know, they're not too, they're not down, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's avenue, but they're, they're sort, well, they've been, profit-making they're profit-making conglomerates, <laughs> but they're a relatively liberal group of people who mostly live in the upper West and East side of New York's. So they've been relatively liberal and, and, and conservatives have been aced out of that. Now, with Fox News, they got a voice and they got started to get that. But conservative voices have been a, have been using digital means for years now, going way, way back. And so it's a real it's been a place where people who weren't able to be heard were able to be heard. And so they've created websites and all kinds of stuff, you know, on Reddit or wherever. And so there's lots of voices. And so when they say they don't have voices, I'm like, you have voices like there are you can create a website, you can create you wouldn't have had Alex Jones had you not had digital means to be able to communicate his views, whatever you think of those views, which they're awful. So these digital means, are they worth the price? Well, I don't know. That's what you get. Like before, Alex Jones never would have been able to be anywhere, right? Where would you have seen him? He'd have been, you know, he'd be down in his dirty little hole for, you know what I mean? Like, and now he can, he can communicate his views to the public. And the, the fact that they say they don't have an ability to communicate their views is just ridiculous. It's a persecuted mentality that's insane. And we also get cat videos. Right. We get cat videos, too. That's but that, very nice. Anything. But I'm just saying, these people have plenty of tools at their disposal. It just it just might be that these are private companies that can make rules about what's allowed and what's not allowed on these platforms. What about the effect on democracy? Facebook and these other companies, overall good for democracy or bad no, for democracy? not good. I think, I think we're in the not... It could, they could be good. The idea that everybody has a voice and people who are, who are disenfranchised have a voice, what a great idea, right? So how, how do we get further towards that ideal? 
as opposed we have to, to be all civil. The toxic. We have to have a civil society, right? We have. Yeah, you society. can't legislate that, right? You can't. That's the thing. Is of course we have a president who's not civil in any way and has taken it to you know to eleven on how to be toxic, and so everybody's the, sort of the brakes are off, right? Everybody just does whatever they want now, and so I don't know how you put that back in the. It's sort of like I'm going to see the the play Network the on mm-hmm. on Broadway. If you remember watching Network, all the things that were in it seemed crazy at the time. Right. <laughs> Now, every single thing in network is present on cable for sure, or some cable show, a psychic show, or whatever, just not executions, not live executions. Right. But everyone's mad as hell. And not going to take it anymore. And so now they have a vehicle to do it. And so the question is, can humanity pull itself back from its behaviors? The part that we aren't talking about is that these these screens are addictive. They're They're designed to be addictive. They hire people to make you addicted to them. And therefore, you're addicted to them and they're, they appeal to the worst nature in this. So what do we do about that? Right? Yeah, well, so, I mean, not to get too into psychology, but, you know, a lot of people are discussing, and my family has been discussing, and it's something that's discussed in the schools more now than it mm-hmm. ever has been before. There's sort of a, a baseline meanness mm-hmm. that people are engaging in, and you suggested various causes, and it's not, you know, great behaviors not being modeled by the president, I think. Mm-hmm. Or any Shocking to say, you know, I, I wouldn't put so much blame on that person. He doesn't make it any better. He may make it a little bit worse. But now, you know, it used to be the case that if you want to say something mean to somebody, you did it in the locker room or in the, on the right. playground. And people would do that. And it happened to me when I was a kid. Yeah. But it's much easier both to do it from a device. And then right. if you're doing it from a device behind the cloak of anonymity, like mm-hmm. a lot of people on Twitter are, and people just get used to trading insults and telling other people to kill themselves mm-hmm. and, and hurt themselves. How do you stop that? How do you stop that? Is well, that just some the of nature? it is actually bots. Some of this is fake. Like that. Look, the Russians came in to create Discord. It's very easy to like. There was a really interesting story I did about the bots around Roseanne Barr when she said the stupid thing about Valerie Jarrett, and then I think Samantha B said something stupid. The initial activity around that on Twitter was created by bots creating trouble and making. Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. And then it drags in humans when they see that activity. Right. So, you know, there's ways to control these systems that, do, that don't gin things up initially by getting rid of bots. That's a, that's a very simple thing is like how do we remove bots from the system so that, so that these manipulators get taken out? That could, could take the temperature down by several degrees, right? Yeah. So Twitter's made some headway there with the trying, bots. Trying, trying. But still, it's still a platform where they don't really monitor the people that are on it and people get to do whatever they want. Somebody last night tweeted at me, delete your face do you think that was a to bot? You? Yeah. Can you? That must have been a bot. I'd right? have to look. I, that's I, kind of mean. Yeah. Yeah. But what, why'd you look at it? Just you know. I just. I did. You did. I did. I'm, see, very... I'm not going to delete my face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I did. I, resp- I responded. Not, not. There was a not New York today. Times reporter who was responding to a bunch of things, and I was like, <laughs> "You're talking to a bot. Stop. Like, don't do, don't do it. It's hard not to. It's hard not to. If someone says in your face, you go back in their face, right? I just said not today. Not today. So I, I, I now have decided to just think of anybody who says anything critical, whether it's intelligently critical, there must be a bot, even in real life. Not always. If, if someone says something that I don't like, obviously, yeah. it's a droid. Right. Yeah, sometimes it is. But all I'm saying is that it, these things are designed not to have the best of human nature in their hearts. So how you build things is how things matter. If you design things for, like I said, virality, speed, and engagement, you're going to get a crappy outcome. You just are. You're going to get noise. You're going to get fake news. If you design them for community and contextuality and factual facts you get a very different outcome. It's like anything you build. So the question is, can we build these systems in ways that are much more careful? They were built for, with growth in mind, and the thing that grows is fear and loathing. 
niceness also is a good thing too. That also turns out to be something that works really well online. Yeah. So the question is, can you start to design these things in different ways? Or have we gone too far and we're so used to it and we're kind of, you know, like Doritos. We like Doritos. By the way, there's carrots. You know, can we get people to like carrots over Doritos? <laughs> I don't know. Can we? No. Sure. No. Maybe. No. Right? Like, I I'm mean, just saying, this is, it's a similar thing to nutrition or anything else. I feel less else. bad about myself if I ate more right. carrots. Right. But I'm I... saying, or are we going to have a giant obese population that is just <laughs> going to die of a heart attack in, like every five in, seconds? In, in cybercrime from their parents' basement. It's not unsimilar to nutrition. It's a lot, it's a yeah. lot the same. If we're going to flood the zone with sugar processed products, we're going to get a bad population. If we think about it, we could also get a good population because these tools are great. Can I ask you a few more questions? Sure. I could go on for an sure. hour. Sure. What is the best run tech company today? Oh, there's, you know, everyone's got their problems. I think Apple, I think is really interesting. I mean, they've got their issues of how they manufacture things. Everyone's, every single company's got issues. But I do like dealing with Tim Cook. I think he was one of the first to sound these alarms, even though it's in his interest to sound the alarms around privacy. I did an interview with him in March where he talked about this, that these business plans are going to create these problems. Um, I think they run that very well. The question is, can they keep making great products? That's going to be their issue. Can they make a product that you want to keep buying and using an Apple product? I like Airbnb a lot, although, you know, some of the bits disorganized. They've got some issues around regulation and things like that. I do like, I think their product is really interesting. Amazon is obviously, um, I try really hard not to use Amazon, but it really is good. <laughs> like he's really good. It's fast. It's fast. It's good. It gets you what you want. The customer service is great. Question is, do we want one single company really decimating retail? Although if retail's bad, should it continue to live? I mean, it's Amazon. There trade-offs. Really, yes, there's trade-offs. I think Amazon's a great, well-run company. Who, if anyone, is the conscience of Silicon Valley? Nobody. Nobody. I don't know. I mean, I, Mark Benioff has been interesting around yeah. pushing around homelessness. Certain, I mean, do we need someone to be that? Well, there hasn't been someone. You know, there's a lot of people that say just a second. I say just a second. A lot of reporters do. The New York Times is doing a great job. The media is, I think the media in general has been doing a pretty good job. But at the same time, you don't want to be that, like, I always use this example. You don't want to be the person sitting on the beach in Kitty Hawk going, okay, they just got two feet off the ground and they said three. Right? <laughs> like, they flew. Like, that, yeah. missing the point that there's all these really amazing innovations that could help humanity around healthcare, around uh, how we live, how we how we connect with each other. There's so much goodness in this technology. How can we get to that? And that's the question. And there's so much amazing. No one would say we shouldn't have flight, right? We shouldn't have made planes. Maybe someone would. Someone would say, why, why do we have planes? But no one says we shouldn't have cars, right? Cars have been a great boon, but they've also been a negative thing. And so the question is, how do we, how do we design these things for maximum goodness for humanity if we're going to use these technologies or we can go into this dystopian view of every single science fiction movie where we end up in a tiny little square foot of space where our door is talking to us and we're we're having relationships with holograms i mean maybe that's where we're going should we be afraid of robots I, you know, I think robots should be afraid of us, but that, you know, <laughs> I'm always fascinated by these robots trying to get robots to be human. Why don't we get humans to be more robotic? Like, why don't we add ectoskeletons? Because oh, we see. could add Exo ectoskeletons, oh, see, we could add more strength, we could add better eyesight. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, speaking of which on Twitter, which is I wouldn't have found it anywhere else, someone said the thing that tech companies should do is sit down whenever they're making a product, think, what is the Black Mirror episode of this <laughs> Of this of this product, what is the worst case scenario that this could? I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was just even doing that would create better products. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Isn't it? Think about it. Black Mirror should advertise. Yes. Bla- the bla- what Doritos. is the Black Mirror? <laughs> Doritos. You love Doritos. There's a lot of product. product Doritos are delicious. A lot of free product placement. They are delicious. They are full of chemicals. <laughs> you can, they are designed to make you fat, just so you know. Are you going to run for mayor of San Francisco? No, not now. No, not right now. Because there's a mayor. We just got a new mayor because but our the mayor next died. Time, are you going to run the next time? I think I'm going to be too old by then. But we'll see how this mayor does. You have to give this mayor a chance. Too Some, old. Everyone running for president. Here's is like why I would like to be mayor of San Francisco. Because look, here's a city that is struggling mightily with issues around homelessness, around uh, haves and have-nots, around issues of just basic functioning city functions. Could there be a city that is sort of the example of how you design cities in the future? And shouldn't it be San Francisco? That's the only thing is, what if you decide, what if the mayor decided no more cars in San Francisco and we're just going to do it by 2020, whatever, whatever the the date you want to have. Like, I think that the mayors have a great, whoever the mayor of any city is, can start to say is, how are we going to design cities going forward to create livable and yet where is the future going, giving everyone's moving a city? And so that's the reason I was very interested in what could you, how could you create on a very local level, a city where you don't create the situation where you have these rich tech companies and poor people on the streets. And how do you solve those problems together as a civic group? I just think it would be a really interesting experiment. And then you could iterate it around the globe. What do you think about Amazon moving an office to New York? What a surprise. <laughs> you know, you notice they didn't locate places where they thought they might. Um, I, you know, it's interesting that the giveaways that people give to the richest people in the world. I thought it was an interesting contrast with Apple just moved into Austin and didn't ask for anything. They just moved in and they that was it. They didn't make a show of it. They didn't make a story. I thought that was a ridiculous circus. It was ridiculous. The I Amazon knew, thing? Yeah, you knew where they yeah. were going to end up. They were going to end up in D.C. and New York. That's where they were going to end up. Is it a good deal for anyone other than Amazon? No. But neither are stadiums, neither are anything. So I think, no. I mean, they, they'll provide great jobs, but you already have great jobs here, right? I would have... No, could always use more. Yeah, but I, I think the question is, why give away money to these wealthy corporations that are making money? I don't understand. I don't even begin to understand that competition. It doesn't make any sense. Right. But there's a little bit of a fear of missing out, the FOMO issue, right? Well, so it's like a lot of nobody things. Nobody wants to lose... Nobody wants to lose the thing, you know, to New Jersey or something. Well, or the thing of anything. Like, look, I was just talking about Theranos the other day with someone, and you know, when Walgreens took Theranos in and they didn't do any due diligence on the product, they were the reason they did it. They were worried CVS was going to get it. It's all massive frauds have been committed on that basis. I had John Kerry on the on the show Mm -hmm. on the podcast to talk about his book about Theranos. And you think to yourselves, why do very very smart people get taken in? The same with people who were victims of Bernie Madoff. Yep, and others. They think, well, my friend right. invests his or her money with this guy, and he's so exclusive. I don't want to wake up five years from now and see my portfolio smaller than my friend's portfolio. Right. And the same with these right. these pharmacy right. companies. Right. The only thing I would say is that when Amazon moves into somewhere, like, look, you want to be cooperative with the government. Say if you're moving in a big area, you want to say, okay, are you going to improve the public transport? Are you, do, are you committed to housing? Are you committed? Like you want to be interested in that stuff. But giveaways to these companies makes almost no sense. To me. Special giveaways. So when you're mayor of San Francisco. No, there will only be no special no giveaways. giveaways. No, I will shake them down for the money they <laughs> owe people. Like I think good creative use, shaking don't down. Use that rhetoric. Oh, I'm not allowed because I'll get like arrested by no, some no, prosecutor no, no. or something like that. No, but I mean, like, are you a bot? No, I'm not a bot. But here's the deal: like, you, if people, sh- companies have a civic responsibility to the to the cities they live in, and it used to be like that, didn't it? It used to be they would fund the opera or the theater or the whatever. And so, I think companies should have a civic responsibility, and they should be glad to do it. By the way, because it's better for their employees. And so, that's how I would run a city. I'd say, listen, you're rich. 
give me some of your money and I promise I will. And the, the, the thing that's responsible of government is to use it in a responsible way to improve the city. And that's the deal that has been broken many times, obviously. Kara Swisher, thanks for being on the show. Thank really you for having it. me. Look forward to reading you every week. Thank you. So at the end of the show today, I wanted to mention something that I got to do this week that I thought was the most inspiring, uplifting thing that I was a part of in these dismal times. And you may have seen this on Twitter, but I was invited to speak at a small function at a place called Monty's Trotteria, uh, not far from NYU Law School last night, at the request of one Stephen Van Zant, who you may also know as Little Stephen. You may also remember him as Silvio from The Sopranos. And he's a member of the E Street Band, which is the band that plays with Bruce Springsteen, who I'm a big fan of. And little Stephen, Stephen Van Zandt, uh, does a lot of things that you might not appreciate, aside from singing and acting and entertaining folks for generations. He also cares about education. He cares about kids. And he and his wife Maureen and a bunch of other folks have for a number of years been supporting the idea of arts in the schools And not just art for its own sake, but art that helps teach people about history and science and all sorts of other things. And as Stephen said last night, it's a tragedy in this country that in some ways the teaching of art is a luxury because it's not that way in other countries. Art is more central to the whole education experience. And together with the folks who run the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation, and you can learn more about all of his work at teachrock.org, They have come up with, I think, 150 lesson plans that are used throughout the public schools in this country where people can learn about some fundamental subject matter area, but through the music of Beyonce or of Springsteen or if you name the artist, they figure out a way to channel an educational lesson through the thing that causes some kids to listen more closely and find it more enjoyable. And that's through music. If someone had told me growing up in New Jersey, where my dad was a pediatrician in Asbury Park, while I was listening to my own personal copy of The River, the double album that came out in 1980, that some years later I'd be hanging out after having been the U.S. attorney with Stephen Van Zandt to talk about music and education, I would have said, you're crazy. But I really hope that that could happen someday, and it did. And it meant a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to the kids. So congratulations to Stephen Van Zandt and Maureen and all the others and everyone who cares about education and music and the combination of the two is a pretty great partnership. Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Kara Swisher. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.